Take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Our passage for today comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. At last, we come to the holy city of Jerusalem. We've been following Christ's journey for quite some time. If you remember back in chapter nine, uh, chapter nine, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that was in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 50 and verse seven, where the prophet says, he set his face like a flint, which is to say that the Messiah would be resolved, immovable, unflinching, unwavering. And we've seen that. Though Jesus taught many things and he performed many miracles and he ministered in many ways uh, throughout the course of his journey, it was this overarching purpose that directed the course that he took to make his way to Jerusalem that he might fulfill the path that the the Lord had ordained for him. We're looking today at the outset of the week the Lord Jesus enters in Jerusalem for the very last time. When he cleanses the temple, he institutes the Lord's Supper. Uh, He is arrested and tried, he is scourged, he is crucified for the sins of the world. It is the most important week in the history of the world. We're looking at the very beginning of that, what we have come to describe as the triumphal entry, that day when Jesus rode the back of a donkey into the city of God's holy habitation as he prepares to make that once for all sacrifice, thus securing an eternal redemption. I wanna invite you now to turn your attention with God's help to the reading of God's word from Luke chapter 19, verse 28. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is he, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, 
I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Lord, thank you for that blessed pronouncement of peace on earth, goodwill toward men, and all that that means to people like us. Lord, thank you for the one that the gospel points to, that it testifies of Christ and him crucified for us, that it, it extends to us your wonderful mercy and redeeming grace. Lord, we come to you asking for your help as we open up your word. God, we come praying that you would grant us uh, your spirit, Lord, that we might hear what you would say to us and that in hearing we would respond with trust and obedience and worship, Lord, that you would get the glory that you deserve. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, most of your Bibles will have as the heading of this portion of scripture, the triumphal entry, which of course calls to mind that latter portion of this particular part of scripture where you have those throngs of people and the cries of acclamation. You might think about the palm branches that are waved. You find those mentioned in the other gospel writers' accounts. This is one of the few stories actually that is uh, described in all four gospel accounts. But if you look at the text, a closer inspection of this passage, you'll notice that the biblical authors don't start there. In fact, they don't focus on the triumphal entry, so to speak. They, they place far more emphasis on the, the events leading up to that entry. They put a lot more stress on the backstory than what we would describe as the main stage. More space is given to the preparation than what happens out in, in public. And that's on purpose. For Luke, in many ways, the backstory in this particular episode of scripture is the story. It's the main focal point. If it seems strange to us that Jesus should find himself uh, making his way into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and G uh, Jesus uh, spends so much time emphasizing the particular preparation that goes into procuring the animal and Luke focuses our attention on those things is because he wants us uh, to focus on those things. He wants it to have that kind of prominence in our minds. And so, of course, the question is why? Why do these seemingly insignificant details related to the mode of Christ's transportation have so much ink spilled over them? Well, as it turns out, the scriptures have a lot to say about that, and we're going to take that into consideration this morning. We want to start where the text starts. What can we learn from the manner of Christ's approach into Jerusalem? 
That's the big overarching question that I have in mind here. Five big ideas that fall under that. First, Christ's kingly authority. Notice the great attention that is given to the way Jesus goes about securing this animal. Uh, Verse 30, he tells his disciples, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. In our Western context, we might be tempted to read this and think to ourselves, why would Jesus just go and take someone else's animal without asking? And there have been all kinds of proposed solutions to try to deal with this, quote, problem. Some have suggested that Jesus already knew the man. He already knew the owner of the donkey and that he had made arrangements ahead of time uh, that the words, the Lord has need of it, were a kind of prearranged password so that the owner would know these two disciples are the ones sent by the Lord. I am not convinced by that. The text almost belabors the process of requisitioning this animal not to show the logistics that went into this whole operation, but to demonstrate that this is an open display of Christ's kingly authority. In a democracy, you would never think of doing this. You would never dream of just commandeering someone's animal without permission. But if you were living in the first century, if you were living in a monarchy, you knew that certain things would always be at a king's disposal. This is actually a very well-attested practice in Persian and Roman empires. You can look up the word angaria, A-N-G-A-R-I-A, if you want to look into more background there. Don't do it now. But suffice it to say that it was the king's privilege and divine right to requisition donkeys and other animals at will whenever he wanted, whenever he had need of them, simply by virtue of his kingship. This is one of the things that Samuel talks about uh, when he speaks to the, the people who are crying out for a king. He said, they will take a tenth of your grain and your servants and your donkeys and put them to his work. So this is part of a king's royal right. And the point here is this, for folks living in this culture, to see someone commandeer another man's animal carries real significance. When Jesus tells his disciples to say, the Lord has need of this. In effect, he is saying, this is part of my domain. This belongs to me. In fact, it will not be long. It will be a matter of days before he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And you see him already exercising that authority here. He's not just another man. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Christ's kingly authority is at work here. He's showing us 
who he is. Secondly, you see Christ's power in his providential ordering of all things. Christ's power in his providential ordering of all things. You see how Jesus tells them where they will find the animal, that it will be tied, that no one has ever ridden it, and so on. He knows what is going to happen. He knows when it will happen. He knows how it will happen. That we see confirmed in verse 32, where it says the disciples went and they found it just as it had been told to them. Just as it had been told them. So Luke makes it unmistakably clear that God is the one directing the course of events here down to the very minutest of details. They found it just as he had told them. We might wonder what that exchange was like when the two disciples go and they meet the owners of the cult. We might think about how that conversation went down, but we can be confident confident of this that because Jesus had given the orders to say what they did and had directed his disciples to a particular cult tied to a particular post in a particular village, that the owners of said cult would know who the Lord was when they commandeered that particular animal and would respond in the desired way. Point being, God can do 10,000 things at once to bring his desired purposes to pass. He can do everything necessary to bring his purposes to pass. If God declared by the mouth of the prophet Zechariah some 550 years or so prior that there would be this donkey that the promised Messiah would stride into the holy city upon, you can be sure that it would happen you can be sure that God's word would prove true. Luke includes all of these details to undergird our our faith, to give us ground for encouragement, church. It underscores that fact. Every word of God proves true. He is in control of everything. Job 42 and verse two, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No purpose of the Lord's can ever be thwarted. That's ground for encouragement. You have every reason here for every fear to be banished as you think about your own life and the Lord's purposes for it. The Lord knows not only what's going to happen, but he exercises masterful control in his providential ordering of all things. This also prevents us from drawing any false conclusions about what's about to happen and the days that are to come. On Thursday, when Jesus is arrested, on Friday, when he's crucified, it stifles any kind of suggestion that Christ was in any way surprised by what was around the corner, that he didn't know what was, what was coming. On the contrary, no, beloved, we see him walking step by step down the path that the Lord God Almighty ordained for him. And all of these preparatory details uh, emphasize that fact, that indisputable fact that Jesus Christ, our Savior, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
You remember what Jesus says in John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Now, at the same time, we are meant to wonder to ourselves as we look at this passage, why does the Lord of heaven and earth have need of a donkey of all things? What kind of king uses a beast of burden to make his grand entrance into the holy city? There's something unusual going on here, more than meets the eye. That brings us to our third observation, Christ's perfect prophetic fulfillment. Christ's perfect prophetic fulfillment. We know, having seen the Lord in his ministry, that he did not normally travel by way of a donkey. And it's not as if he couldn't have walked into Jerusalem the way that he had uh, journeyed most of his ministry walking about from place to place. In fact, he's only about a half a mile away from Jerusalem by the time that he gets to the Mount of Olives. So I think there are a couple of things that we can say here. First, God is gracious to give his people encouragements and aids for their faith. We see what God is doing here in Christ, fulfilling prophecy spoken long beforehand. God is gracious to give his people encouragements and aids for their faith. The Christian faith is not a blind faith. God does not call the lost to take a leap of faith. The Christian faith is an attested faith. It's a faith that stands on solid ground. And we see here just one of the ways that God graciously shows forth his character and says to sinners, trust me. He utters by the mouths of prophets promises that are later brought to fulfillment in stunning detail. Paul describes the apostles and the prophets as the foundation of the church. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, to capture the significance of what's going on here in Luke chapter 19, you really have to go back all the way to Genesis, to the very beginning. We only have time to look briefly today, but in Genesis 49, uh, Jacob calls his sons together there and, and he, he pronounces a series of blessings on his sons. He says, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. And he begins to bless those, those 12 sons, starting from the oldest, working his way down to the youngest. And he goes through Reuben and Simeon and Levi. And eventually he gets to Judah and he gets to this son who he clearly anticipates is going to, in, in, in many ways, outshine uh, the other sons in terms of glory. He pronounces a blessing on Judah that includes the promise of a, of a royal line established through him. He, he talks about the wealth of nations being brought to him. One of his descendants 
receiving the obedience of the peoples, not just the Hebrews, but the nations. Listen to what he says, Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Who does that make you think of? When Jesus calls for the colt to be untied and brought to him, he is clearly, deliberately associating himself with the promise of the scriptures. It's an unmistakable claim. He is the promise fulfillment. He is the royal son, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the one who comes to rescue his people, the one who spills his blood that we might be washed whiter than snow. Now, that still doesn't fully satisfy this question of why a donkey? Why this beast of burden? And to get a little closer to the answer, we go to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter nine and verse nine. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like. This is a passage that Matthew quotes in his account of the triumphal entry. But in Zechariah chapter nine and verse nine, it says this, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be broken. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now the background on that passage is helpful. It's instructive to us. This is at a time when the Jewish nation did not have a king. Uh, this is, in the time just before this, Zerubbabel had served as governor over Jerusalem. And now even he's out of the picture Israel's left without someone on the throne. Well, it's in that, that vacuum, if you will, that the word of the Lord sounds forth through the mouth of the prophet Zechariah, telling them to look for a ruler. Look for a ruler who is to come, bringing with him salvation. And, and if you have your Bible there, notice what it says is, it describes him as someone who not just executes righteousness, but someone who is righteous himself. Your king is coming to you righteous. Now, every, every nation wants a king who executes righteousness on behalf of their people. But here is one promised who comes Righteous. He himself will be righteous. 
When Paul says in Romans 8, no one is righteous, no, not one, here is the exception to that rule. This king would come bearing salvation. What did we see just a couple of weeks ago? The son of man came to seek and to save that which is lost, to deliver souls from the bondage of sin and of death. Now remember at the very beginning of this book, if you were here with us, I don't know how far back, a couple of years ago, Luke said at the beginning of this book, he was seeking to write an orderly account. And what was the purpose? So that we might have certainty concerning the things we believe. An orderly account so that we might have certainty concerning the things that we believe. And this is part of that. This is part of that orderly account designed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to lend certainty to our faith, to encourage us to go on trusting in the Lord. Whatsoever the Lord purposes, that he will accomplish. You might like to think to yourself, I would, that the disciples would have rejoiced when they saw all of this happening and that all of the, the, the puzzle pieces would have just fallen into place and that they would, they would do something like you see on the day of Pentecost where they, they say, aha, this is that spoken by the prophet. They don't do that. <laughs> they don't get it. The puzzle pieces don't fall into place. John tells us they did not understand these things at first, but... When Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Now, why do I bring that up? Oh, we are very much in a position of privilege and advantage and that we can look back today and take in the whole scope of prophetic utterance and divine fulfillment. We can see what God in Christ has done to bring his saving purposes to pass in the world. Uh, Peter puts it this way. He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He says, it's because you stand where you do in this privileged position of being able to see more clearly than your forebears the prophetic word, more fully confirmed that you must pay attention. Until that day dawns when Christ appears to judge the living and the dead, you must pay attention. And so dear ones, that begs the question, are you paying attention? Are you paying attention to what God in Christ has accomplished for us? I, I want to return for just a moment to Zechariah's prophecy here. It, it's particularly in the latter part of uh, chapter nine and verse nine, where things really are surprising. This is where Jews very well might have turn their heads askew a little bit 
when they heard this proclaimed, thinking, my, this is, this is unexpected. This is, this is strange. How will the promised Messiah come? Humble and mounted on a donkey. This is number four, Christ's amazing humility. Christ's amazing humility. God determined that first century Jews and every generation after them would have this striking picture impressed upon the hearts, uh, their hearts of the king of heaven riding on a colt, something that would serve to uh, instruct us as to the nature of his kingship, the way in which he would be exalted. In the wisdom of God, a donkey fit the bill, not a chariot, not a war horse, not legions of angels, but a beast of burden. Still, if you look at Zechariah 9, you will see there is a strong contrast between verse 9 and verse 10. The king will come in mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now what immediately follows? Chariots and war horses will be cut off. The battle bow will be cut off. Luke wants us to see that Jesus is the righteous salvation bearing king. He is that, but he also wants us to see that he is humble. He is going to be victorious. He will vanquish his foes, but he will not do it in the way that you expect. He will do it through humility and lowliness. That's why the Lord had need of a donkey. It was a visible sermon. He chooses the lowliest of animals and he marries that, that, that image of a donkey with this strange kind of dignity and that he was the first person to ever ride it. In fact, Luke tells us something that, that none of the other gospel writers do, that the disciples set Jesus on it. He was enthroned in a manner of speaking on a donkey. So again, you have this consistent theme, brothers and sisters, we have seen throughout the gospel of Luke of the upside down nature of the kingdom, just pressed home to our hearts so powerfully. This tension we see between regality in Christ and humility in the same one. He is a king, but he rides on a borrowed animal. He processes into the city mounted but he does it on a donkey. He rides in on this animal that has been specially consecrated, sanctified, you could say, for this special occasion. It's never been ridden on, and yet it's not a white horse. It's not a throne. He isn't lifted up on some kind of royal carriage. He's on a colt, this lowly animal. He rides into the city with a certain amount of pomp. There's a certain amount of, of splendor, but it's a humble splendor. He's proclaimed as king, but he isn't arrayed in splendid apparel. He has no crown. There's no royal guards or attendants that are around him. No soldiers. People make these loud exclamations. They praise him for his mighty works, but the religious leaders reject him. 
He is heralded not by spiritual leaders, not by civil dignitaries, but by relative nobodies. The crowd ascribes blessing and glory in the highest as he enters the city to be crucified. And so we see the Lord Jesus Christ doing two things at once. He makes this conscious public declaration of his kingship by coming in this way. He invites the masses to see. He is the promised Davidic Messiah. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of your book. And at the same time, the manner of his approach in this ironic way, militates against the idea that he's gonna accomplish salvation and overthrow the powers of darkness just by way of brute force. Christ comes in weakness. He comes in flesh and blood. He comes in the likeness of sinful men. And yet without sin, kingly glory wrapped in splendid, amazing humility for us, for needy sinners. And putting a donkey front and center is God's way of saying, look, Jesus does not come into Jerusalem announced by trumpeters. He doesn't come clothed in royal garments. He doesn't come surrounded by dignitaries. He doesn't come bearing a sword, declaring war on his enemies, taking a seat in the palace. He comes as one rumored to have been born in shame, from a town of disrepute, an ordinary carpenter by trade. He comes as one despised and rejected by men, betrayed by one of his own disciples. He has no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. The man of sorrows rides in on a donkey, coming not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He comes to be sacrificed and to save. Now, dear ones, how should we respond to this king? The prophet Zechariah tells us exactly how we should respond to such a king. He says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. And that's exactly what happens. That's exactly what happens here in our text. It says the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. And what mighty works they had seen throughout the course of his ministry. The blind received their sight the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and poor have good news preached to them. John closes his gospel account saying, were every one of the things Jesus did written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And for this, the crowd erupts. They erupt in praise and jubilation. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They take up the words of Psalm 118. 
hailing him as Messiah. This is a psalm that pilgrims would sing on their way into Jerusalem. It pictures Israel surrounded by nations that, that threaten to undo them. And yet at the same time, it's a psalm of victory. It glories in the power of God to open the gate of the Lord that the righteous may enter and come up to the very horns of the altar, taking hold of the Lord, as it were. Well, now, centuries later, Jesus begins to physically enact the hope that that psalm portrayed, but this isn't theater. He is fulfilling prophecy. He is fulfilling all that Israel longed for, and the crowd renders his rightful worship. They throw their cloaks on the ground. They rejoice in what he has wrought. Peace in heaven. Now, brothers and sisters, this is not to say simply that heaven is a, piece of, a place of peace. Well, that much is true. But why would you rejoice in that unless you have a share in that peace? unless you know peace with the God of heaven. They're pointing, in other words, to the peace that is laid up in heaven for those who are Christ's own. It's for that, they say, glory in the highest. Glory in the highest. Now we should pause here and address something that you'll often hear looking at the contrast between this particular passage and what you see a little bit later in chapter 23, where the crowd cries, crucify him, crucify him. As often said, maybe you've heard this before. Ah, well, there you have it. You see how fickle the crowds are, the fickleness of the human heart, that the, the same ones who worshiped and adored him would cry out for his death just a few days later. Well, there are some things that seem to take root in our popular imagination that just don't have any bearing in scripture. And this is one of them. It's true that Judas will betray him. It is true that Peter will deny the Lord Jesus. It is true that the disciples will desert Christ in the hour of his death. There will be uh, confusion and disappointment and uh, disorientation, but there is no indication in the Bible that Jesus was double-crossed by his own followers the passage that follows right after what we're looking at today in Luke chapter 19 shows Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem's rejection of his Messiahship, the Jewish people. Its disciples made largely of Galilean pilgrims who are following Christ into the city saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Their praise was sincere. Now, the adulation is not unanimous. You can see that looking at verse 39. Back to our text, it says, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Already you can see a fulfillment of the parable of the 10 minas that we saw last week where if you recall, the king returns and his citizens say, we do not want this man to reign over us. 
There was a divide in the response that you see here to Christ's arrival into the holy city. There were those who rejoice and praise him with a loud voice. And then there are others who try to silence him. And I just would like to point out to you something that I, th- I think we can see a point of connection with, with something we see in our culture today um, and has been around for millennia. But notice that they have so much in common with many today, these critics, the Pharisees here. They call him a teacher. They grant the fact that he has some interesting things to say. We have seen really all along the way throughout the course of his ministry that they are willing to, to be present as he ministers. They're willing to sit on the, the periphery and uh, take in his, his teaching, but they can't abide the idea that he should be more than a teacher, that he should be received as king, much less worshiped and adored. You can regard Jesus as a good teacher, as a rabbi, as an admirable example, but someone to bow down to, someone to be, someone to, to worship and to obey, to, to herald and to submit to. That's, that's the paradox though of the triumphal entry. The king of glory and of grace comes to Jerusalem humble and mounted on a donkey and he deserves the worship and the obedience of every soul on earth. Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. Hail in the time appointed, his reign on earth begun, the old hymn goes. This brings us to our last lesson. And we can draw from the text, Christ will get the glory that he deserves. Look at verse 40, he answered, this is speaking in response to the Pharisees. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Why does Jesus say that? What is he getting at? Well, simply put, nothing will stop the Savior from receiving the glory that he deserves. Creation declares what religious experts cannot see. You can either have singing crowds or shouting stones But either way, Christ will get the glory. He will have his praise. This image of rocks crying out comes from Habakkuk chapter two, verse 11. And again, I'd encourage you at a later time to look at the larger context of that passage to see the, the historical background. But in a nutshell, it looks like there in that passage to Israel's eyes that the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, are gaining the upper hand. They're tyrannizing God's people. They're carting them off to Babylon. Uh, the, the Chaldeans worship idols. They reject the, the God of Israel. And it's in the midst of this particular setting that Habakkuk's vision comes. It says, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. He goes on there to pronounce a series of woes against the, the Babylonians, eventually proclaiming this, for the earth will be filled 
with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Christ will get the glory that he deserves. In new covenant terms, every knee will bow, Paul says, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you see the way Christ draws from this text in Habakkuk, and then you begin to see the the implication. One author puts it this way. If geology has to take up the task of theology, then it is an implicit judgment on Jerusalem. Will the Jewish people be likened to Babylon, in other words, in their rejection of the Messiah? of the one true God, even so his glory will resound throughout the whole earth, even to the Gentiles. Christ came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see the very same thing with the link to Psalm chapter 118 in our text. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In the original context, you heard from the reading earlier today, uh, Psalm 118 is about salvation from pagan nations. And it says there, the stone that the builders uh, rejected has become the cornerstone. The builders in in, in that context are godless idolatrous nations surrounding Israel. But who are the builders in the New Testament? Who are the builders in new covenant terms? What's the referent there? They're the spiritual leaders of Israel. They're Jews. There were only two groups of people there that day, and there were only two present today. You have loud acclamation on one hand and stubborn rejection, belief and unbelief. No middle ground. That, same, that, that, that still holds true today. The Jewish nation today, their great need is to believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved through the promised Messiah. I want you to think for a moment today and answer in your heart, which one of these sides are you characterized by? Who do you say that he is? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts before you. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Father, thank you for the peace in heaven that has been wrought through the shedding of Christ's blood. God, we pray that you would impress upon our hearts the awesome sacrifice of Christ in his condescension, his humility. Lord, in all of the ways that he came to serve Guilty, needy sinners. 
Lord, we know that there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which men must be saved. We pray that our hearts would be set on him. We pray that our faith would be firmly established in his righteousness, that we would trust in nothing else, not ourselves, not our works, not our sorrows, but Christ alone. In Jesus' name.